0: Um, hi. <laughs> that uh, that little clip was a a, a gift from this uh, uh, Polish filmmaker. He's a guy who made this about thirty years ago. Uh, he teaches at the uh, Woj Film School, and uh, I saw him give a talk a week ago. And he gave me this uh, this video, and it just well for the music of voices. I I, I couldn't think of a better way to open so. Um, Uh, I'm Ben Rubin, and uh, thank you all for coming to this session. Um, Before I I sort of properly introduce myself and while I have this uh, uh, DVD still in the machine, I just want to play another very short piece that uh, I think might be of interest further on. Okay. You, you get the idea. Uh, but does anyone, could anyone possibly say which is the real sound? Are any of those the real sound? And uh, yet each one of them looks like it is. Um, or some of them maybe cause you to, to, to doubt, you know, is that really the sound of that spoon hitting that surface? Uh, but it does call into question, you know, sort of where's the threshold where what we see and what we hear kind of diverge sufficiently to make us think like that's not really the sound of that thing. Um, And although I'm not really here to talk about uh, film sound, because that's something uh, much more qualified people are doing tomorrow, I think what seeing this and and thinking about this session kind of brought up for me were a lot of questions about, you know, well, what is sound art anyway? Is, Is there is there such a thing as, as sound art per se? And, and if so, what distinguishes it from radio art, from music, from other kind of sound-centered uh, endeavors? And um, I came up with an answer that uh, is, is a little, it, well, that surprised me, I guess. Uh, and that is that I, I think sound art at least the way that I I, I have come to realize that I think about it, has a visual component to it. And even though I don't uh, do very much film-related sound or moving image-related sound, the fact that I do sound in an installation context, in a physical context, in an architectural context, uh, that there is some physical and therefore visual incarnation, that there's a place, uh, that there are materials that there's a circumstance and a situation and that all of that adds up to generally something visual is a pretty important part and uh, uh, there was a moment when I wasn't sure I'd remember to ask for a projector for this presentation and I was sort of contemplating my doom this morning and and thinking like, God, how am I going to present this stuff without visuals? And that was another sort of reinforcing reminder that maybe sound art, at least the way I think about it and practice it, uh, is in part a visual medium, or, or maybe that is the distinguishing uh, uh, factor. Um, so, I'm going to do a little razzmatazz here. Can everyone hear me all right? If there's anything wrong with the sound, just let me know, uh, I can't hear it so well from here. Um, So, welcome again, I'm Ben Rubin, and and this session is the Music of Voices, and I'm going to talk about my own work and about the work of artists that have been influential to me and play examples of both. And I've tried to make a loose thread through all of this, which is the voice. Uh, starting with the the first clip that I showed, uh, the voice is not present in everything that I do, and and not present in everything that I'll show. But it's I think the voice notions of of how we hear, how we hear voices differently than other sounds, and uh, kind of call and response uh, uh, as a dynamic. All those things really play play into my work throughout. So. Um, uh, that's the thread. and um, I'll start with uh, a piece that I don't really have uh, uh, a sample for, except for this image. Um, this is the first thing I did. I, I studied documentary film. Uh, uh, studied computer science and filmmaking as an undergraduate. Then I went to MIT to study with a professor there who had been my teacher's teacher as an undergraduate, a documentary filmmaker named Ricky Leacock. And so I sort of learned uh, observational cinema, uh, uh, cinema verite as, as, a, as, a, as a practice there. And while I was still at MIT, a uh, composer named Steve Reich came there fishing for a kind of uh, uh, technical guy uh, who could help hook him up with techniques and, and technologies that would allow him and his collaborator, uh, the video artist Beryl Corot, to realize this uh, this rather ambitious for the time uh, kind of multimedia music piece. And they referred to this work as a kind of documentary opera. And uh, this was, I think, the first uh, divergence from you know what what I had imagined I would be doing, which is going out to make documentary films. Suddenly I was in this performance uh, music world. I'd never set foot in a theater before, uh, and uh, started working with, with a composer who was already at the time one of my great heroes, and, uh, and got really interested in both what he was thinking about, which I'd already been interested in, known about his sort of formal ideas. Steve Reich, and I'll play you two examples right now uh, of his work, um, he introduced for me uh, before I ever knew him, the idea of phasing and phase music. How do you take, um, well, I'll play, I'll play the first uh, section. This is when I was building these machine systems for the cave. But here's Steve Reich's work from the 60s. Uh, the first piece that he he's probably best known for in the 60s is this piece called Come Out. And what this was was, uh, you'll hear in a second, he had a tape recorder, he made a, a, a short loop of a, a phrase that you 'll hear, and then he put that on two tape recorders and set them rolling and He thought he was trying to just find interesting offset points uh, and make music out of just ta- you know sort of this what we would now think of as a digital delay kind of an effect uh, just take one sound and repeat it later and and uh, he discovered in the process of, of just doing this that what was more interesting than discovering specific relationships was letting the two tape recorders drift out of phase with each other. And so that's what this piece is. And it's a, I think it's about a 12 minute piece. I'm just going to play the first uh, three minutes or so. I had
1: to like open the blues up and let some of the blues blood come out to show them. I had to Like open the blues up and let some of the blues blood come out to show them... Come out to show them. 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 (laughs) Come out to show them, 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 Come out to show them. 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 Come to show them come out 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 to show them out to show them come 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 out 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 to come out 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 come 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 so come out show come show 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 come show come out show come out show come show come out show come 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 show come out show come show come out show show come show show come show 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 show
0: come show that goes on and it really develops, and I'm not playing enough of it to really let it develop into what it becomes, which is this really interesting kind of rhythm that that, that develops in these, these rather complex uh, overlap effects. Um, what's really interesting about, well, there's, this work is interesting on any number of levels, uh, the fact that it has this kind of initiating audio recording which is a documentary sample and then it is kind of abstracted away to become this tonal and rhythmic form that is then used to to create music that to do justice. You, you really do have to listen to the whole piece. Um, what Steve Rice did next is even more interesting to me. He had been interested in this speech as a way of generating melody and rhythm ideas. And uh, this piece really, as it evolves, does become, it sort of turns into music gradually. Um, what he did next was he, he wanted to make a piece that would uh, uh, take musical samples on tape and face shift those against each other. And he tried that, and the results were not that interesting to him but what was more interesting was an experiment that he, he tried he, he didn't think it was possible to play this kind of music where one player is very gradually moving ahead of the other uh, but at a certain point he sat down with a friend at two pianos and they, they found that they were able to do it and the piece that came out of that was Piano Face which is really a beautiful piece of music so, just a little bit this is two live pianists You can hear how this this is two identical patterns being played and just phase shifted, and gradually it really it goes through this continual process of transformation. Um, wow, there really is sound bleed. Uh, Julie asked me to keep the levels very low because of the sound bleed. So I, I apologize. I hope can you hear okay? Was that level like, like okay? So I'll keep it around that level. Um, so. Uh, and, and I think the reason I'm presenting these is because of the piece uh, that I'll show you right now, um, which is a piece I just finished. Uh, in fact, I, I just finished the documentation for this. It was shown uh, just a couple of weeks ago at a festival in Seattle. And it's called Spin. And it's um, it's the first piece that I've made that is uh, uh, a really Essentially, abstract piece. I mean, everything from from this piece forward that I'll show you is very much connected with sort of uh, themes and topics and and uses language uh, extensively. Uh, So I'm starting with the kind of most uh, abstract and formal work. Um, But uh, well, I'll show you what this piece is about. Um, This piece is about trying to create a kind of synthetic choreography of sound and form, and using these wheels to kind of be visual representations of sound. And the way the piece works is it's laid out in a, in a room, this is a kind of a concept sketch for, for the way these wheels could move, uh, which I originally did without sound. The idea is that they move together, they move separately, and that there are eventually uh, ways of playing with kind of phase and phase shift. Between them as they as they rotate um, and it uh, was another early sketch, but this is the way it eventually laid out in the room these six discs, uh, which are about this big, they're two feet across uh, they're projected uh, forms onto these discs, and above each disc just behind and just above and and just kind of disappearing into the blackness is. In fact, one of these very same speakers, a big Mackie speaker. And so each disc had, there were six speakers, six distinct sounds. So it created this kind of line of of sound. Uh, And I'll show you just a, this video runs about seven minutes. So conceptually, what's happening is it's as if each disc is a phonograph record. Uh, and as the disc spins forwards at a kind of what I'd call the normal speed, which is actually pretty close to 33 RPM, uh, uh, you would hear the sound at a kind of nominal pitch and speed when the disc would spin faster. Um, you would hear the sound correspondingly speed up. If the disc would stop, uh, the sound would stop, and you could sort of scratch the discs, which you'll see in one part of this, and, and the sound would kind of scratch. So. Thank <laughs> you. sort of a visual realization of a, of a phase piece. The wheel on the right, every two measures will drop back by one. questions on that piece before I yes. move on? Yeah.
2: Um was the so was the movement of the of the circles triggering the sound or was, was the sound and the
0: movement both pre programmed to match one another? Um people have asked that before and th- the answer is really there how to, I'm not sure how best to articulate this. This piece is new enough that I'm not that good at explaining it yet. But um, essentially, the software that I made that runs this has each... It's as if I put a record onto six, ter- six different records onto six different turntables. And then I start the, the scene of the piece. Like there, were, You saw four different sections there. There are four different, essentially, samples... Uh, attached to each disc uh, in each of those scenes and once that's set up I don't change that for the rest of the the movement of that piece all I do is control the speed of that disc uh, of each of those discs so when I tell the disc to go forward the disc turns and the sound goes they go together they can't be separated any more than a you know a record could turn with the needle down on it, and you could hear a different sound. No, you know, you hear exactly what it is. So that's that's what I tried to set up is this system where where they were, they were essentially locked together. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if that answers the question, but so what I was triggering is the movement, and the movement is both it, it manifests itself both visually and sonically. Um, I wrote software. In a system called Max MSP, so.
3: visual aid to guide you to sort of make you appreciate the piece. And then at other times it seems as though it's I mean, using the the aesthetic really of you know, like, the of the wheels to inform you for composition. And I was just more curious on like how does that interplay, you know, work
0: for you? Well, I guess for one thing I'm not actually trained as a composer or musician, so I'm just kind of working intuitively and I don't have very many tools at my disposal uh, in a sense and in fact the only way I've found so far to work out musical ideas is to set them up within the context of some kind of piece with a lot of other stuff going on and then the musical ideas sort of they emerge or they, 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 they kind of work themselves out that way so kind of set this whole thing up so that I could work out these ideas and I think it was driven by some of the same things that I think were driving that, that uh, uh, Wojcik uh, I'm not going to pr- even attempt to pronounce his last name uh, you know just an investigation what can we learn about you know the relationship of sound and image and, and movement um, and how they, how they kind, of, kind of attach themselves to each other um, so that's kind of what that piece was about and go on from there Uh and return.
2: The music the image
0: the I don't think the music would have existed without the image in this particular case. It's not like I wrote music and then tried to put an image to it, you know? It like the phase work in particular. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it didn't have an image associated with it. Other, however, it was the effective you know, as a, as a tool to appreciate it. That's what, that's what I wanted to yeah, I mean, in a way, that, in the in the instance of that last section of the piece, which was a, a kind of really straightforward phase piece, I thought it was, you know, it made it easier to appreciate what it means. What What is a phase piece? Well, it's these two things kind of turning, and one of them is gradually drifting against each other, and it's like, you know, like you can see the windshield wipers kind of, they don't do that anymore, but they used to go out, in and out of phase with each other. Uh, So that's sort of what it was heading for. Um, Actually, I guess I can set this up now. This is really undignified. What happens next here? Because the video does all kinds of... So this piece I'm showing, this is... uh, Inventors, uh, wings of desire, and um, there's a scene in this movie. This is the undignified part. Uh, okay, okay. Um, there's a scene in this movie that really has has stuck in my head, and I think was uh, certainly one of the things in my mind. uh, Where where I'm leading towards is this piece, listening post that I did uh, last year, finished last year. And uh, so I wanted to show you this, uh, which really stuck in my mind because of the sound, primarily. So I'll show about four minutes of this. we've already established for anyone who hasn't seen this movie at this point in the movie we've established that there are these angels who drift through the city of berlin unseen by the people and uh... and they can hear what people are thinking and so now we're in a library
2: Das Doxum, das das hat in den Moment. Walter Benjamin kaufte 1921 Paul Klees Aquarell an. Über sie Weg ziehen den die Kraniche. Die seltene Implantation im kurzen interstiziellen Teil geht ebenfalls mit einer Oktuelle I'm not sure.
0: remember being really struck, it was among other things, one of the first films I remember seeing in stereo uh, it was released in stereo and, and shown in stereo and uh, I just had never been so struck by sound in a film as this um, and I think just the way that, that moment of sound design and the whole early part of the film creates this kind of babble of multiple layers of voices uh, becoming this kind of underlying wash of sound and then setting against that or uh, allowing to rise up from that specific voices that you can hear individually. And um, I think the experience would be somewhat different if I understood German, uh, but uh, I think the idea is pretty clear. Um, so. Another piece um, that I'll play, just a, a little excerpt from uh, again music. This is a piece by Thomas Tallis, who's uh, uh, I'm not going to get the time period right. I won't try. Uh, early music composer, uh, and uh, this particular piece is a motet for forty voices. And at forty, it's a forty-part motet, so it's forty individually changing parts. Uh, Every member of the chorus has a a different part to sing. And um, I'll play this in part to describe an installation that I saw. Uh, Did anyone else see this Janet Cardiff piece? Yes, at PS1. Uh, Absolutely extraordinary piece um, where she had recorded... She'd recorded the motet with the 40 singers individually mic'd and then put 40 speakers around a room uh, so that you had the experience of being in the, they were arranged in a ring facing inwards or in groups of five and they were just at the height of a person. So you had the experience being in this installation of being. me to this piece. Um, did anyone see this at the Whitney? Yes. A few people, but mostly not. Um, oh, in Seattle. Wow, great. Um, we, we workshopped it in Seattle. Uh, too. Uh, so this piece is... Um, a piece that I worked on for about three years with a statistician named Mark Hansen, who was at Bell Laboratories. He's now at UCLA, and um, the piece started out as a kind of uh, uh, sort of a geeky experiment with uh, data and sound, and and how can we, um, you know, create software to run data into it and hear sound out, and would that be a worthwhile thing to do? We weren't sure, uh, and through a long and circuitous path, we ended up sort of stumbling on chat as our data and deciding that this, this outpouring of language from all the thousands and thousands of chat rooms that, were, uh, that, that exist throughout the internet was something that we would try to initially listen to and later grew into a kind of audiovisual piece. So this is, these are just, just run through these process pictures. We built these circuit boards. We hung them in these strands. Um, this is a sort of visual inspiration. This is a piece by Robert Irwin, a uh, kind of open grid of screens um, that uh, I liked for, for the fact that it creates this kind of spatial plane, but is so permeable and, and, and open. And so this is our permeable plane of text. This is the piece in the studio. Here it is in an earlier format at uh, BAM in Brooklyn, and uh, what I want to get to, put put this disc in, there's some video of this that I'd like to show. First, I'll show this part. This um, What we're trying to accomplish with this piece is to somehow give a sensory representation of, of just this enormous uh, chaotic outpouring of, of language that's coming from all these websites. Uh, so this part of the piece just takes all the messages and kind of sorts them by length. And so you'll see sort of waves of shorter messages and longer ones, and uh, the shorter messages are are sort of, they are the less bright pixels, if you think of this as a, as a kind of composite display. And there's also a very subtle sound that you can just barely hear. The longer the messages are, the louder they kind of flutter the displays. Back to the motet uh, notion and how it ties into this in in any way, Um, there are not 40 speakers in here, but there are eight, and there are five uh, sort of in an arc uh, behind the the visual part of the piece, and then three behind. So there is a kind of uh, uh, spatial variety of where the sounds come from, and in certain scenes they come from the part of the screen where you see text, and that's the case in this next scene that I'll show this This part uh we found when we analyzed all the messages coming in, we looked for you know different features in the what are the most common words, most common phrases, uh what one thing we found is that among the most common words that begin messages, uh, messages most often begin with the words "I am," and so based on that, we just started skimming off. Mostly in ascending order of length and then presents them in in, as you'll see
4: I am fourteen. I'm eating green pepper. I am freezing. Yes. Yeah. You're hearing exactly what I'm. Tired. I am thirty. I am going. I'm from Latvia. I am. I am here. I am hot girl. I am doing fine. I am fully awake, sir. I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm comfortable with my assertions. I'm an east-sider, I'm the white lighter, I am Stumpy, I'm all yours, I am a professional killer, deer. I am proud of not being British. I'm worried about that, lucky. I'm in Eastern Canada, grumpy. I'm in Victoria right now. I am Israeli, barred. From 1980, I'm not really. I am a Colombian boy. I am good, thanks. I am just a security guard. I am not so good with English. I am from Romanian. i stuck in
0: Oklahoma. So, so I was listening I'm addicted to the to session, uh, a couple of things struck me. Um, I am gone. One in terms of the music. Uh, I am giving you advice. What Jonathan Mitchell said about, you know, trying to find a music that would sort a train of station. provide a neutral support and yet kind of bring out the I am alive inherent qualities in what this was that's I think what I was trying to do with this music And um, the other was that um, and I was going to say it's particularly challenging because I don't know what the text is going to be it's always different Um, so I was trying to provide something that would be kind of emotionally an open enough framework to allow the text to be funny or sad or, you know, whatever it kind of wanted to be. The other thing was in listening to that uh, uh, Shades of Grey piece, uh, there was a comment somebody made about, you know, hearing these comments and not knowing, is this a person who's contemplating an abortion, just had an abortion, is totally opposed to anybody being able to have them. not knowing the context actually is a very powerful thing, and I found that true uh, as we were constructing this. That you know, it was it was the, the sort of leap of imagination that would happen when you would read something, and you just wouldn't know. Is that you know what was that being said in response to, or to try to provoke, or you know, its its context is absolutely gone and, and unrecoverable, um, and so your imagination kind of has to fill in. And uh, so I think things that were never part of something that might have ever seemed poignant in context might seem poignant because of the the, the sequence that you end up seeing them in. Um, so I'll show one more section from this.
4: to stop communism in background for your lives Bloomberg, you have on ash bloom bearer I have to have, have his name you to above have as excited New York dash every time the closing numbers were so shown well to you advertising but time I suggest you use your head first
0: Minor, the again, are so this is a much more complicated uh, kind of algorithm working in this in this part of the piece. It initially pulls a message at random and puts it on the screen, uh, and then it looks for messages that are coming down this torrent of text that have words in common with it. And if it doesn't find any, then the message just fades away. But if it does, then you find topic areas starting to kind of spontaneously grow. And because of the way the
4: algorithm works, it creates these sort of unpredictable patterns of time. You don't know precisely when a message is going to be trapped by the software. I know the truth, but when one is, I makes sense read by the voice among other freezes on screen. Click, and click here the screen, just pregnancy, under those conditions, could and an the to proceed. Proceed. to the, receipt. 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 the time to go to to and love to this day on the board's then I have I to the love his contribution, watchdogs database, and 20,000 dollars? I don't know, do
0: so this one gradually gets more and more intense, and the screen becomes more full
4: before the end, and it builds up in density as it goes. Any questions about this piece? Yeah.
0: We wanted to, well, first of all, we were looking for some kind of voice synthesis software uh, that would read the text for us, because the text is coming in live, there's no way to have a human being, although it's an interesting thing, I've, started to imagine trying to do a performance where you do have people actually reading these messages. But um, in order to, to, to build this as an installation, we had to find some kind of a uh, software voice. And Mark was at Bell Labs at that time, and they had an experimental uh, voice synthesizer that was capable of doing 50 independent voices that could come out of 50 different speakers uh, from one computer and there was nothing else really anywhere around that could do that. But because it was sort of prototype software, this was the only voice they had, this male British. Um, there was a female voice, and we just couldn't get it to work. Uh, and I would have loved to have that as a, as a, as a color to add to the piece as well. Uh, but so it's, it's uh, at this point, sort of a technological Fact. Uh, it just is what it is. Yes, in the back. It's a it's a live stream. Right. We had a network of computers at that time out at Bell Labs, that were running sort of software robots that would crawl the web. Uh, Looking for active chat rooms, and when it found an active chat room, it would just lock onto that stream and pipe all the all the text back to a, a central place and that became our our sort of you know it all it all got funneled into one unified stream of of text and that, if it found it would do dictionary lookups on the language that it was getting, and if it found a lot of words you know, the, the certain percentage of the words were not in the English dictionary, it would go away. Uh, and there were always lots of, you know, I think the percentage we had to use was like 65% in the dictionary because there's so many sort of typos and and webisms, you know, chatisms that people type with that are not in the dictionary. Well. I hadn't seen that Wings of Desire thing in years, but it certainly was rattling around, I mean, you know, clearly it was rattling around in my head. Um, and uh, so uh, I actually just got the DVD uh, this week for this conference and it is sort of, it's striking to me, you know, the similarities were more than I even had remembered. Um, Dean you had a question? The only terms that we chose were "I am" and "I like," and uh, yeah, they alternate. I think it would display a whole message. Uh, it was it was the whole message. So it's "I am" and then whatever whatever follows, and in some cases that was as short as "I am." and it stopped there but in other cases it was I am blah 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 and it it would just take all that and it went up to like a 100 characters and then it would it would stop mainly there, there was a sign outside that, um, that it, it, well, the attempt was to explain, to me the most important thing that I wanted people to know was that the piece was live, you know, that this wasn't just being drawn from a database, that we didn't type this in, that it wasn't edited, at least not, not uh, by, you know, not in any specific and intentional sense. Um, but that it was all being drawn in as, as part of a process and that it was live. Um, so there was a little explanation outside that tried to at least make that point. And beyond that, we just let let people make what they would of it. One more question
2: back there? I suppose it um, from that question away. I can see how um, it must be fascinating to be involved with the technical side of it. And See what happens to
0: experiment to that depth,
2: and uh, do not know really what's going to happen. And it has, um, you know, audio, and visual
0: appeal and interest. But I wonder, is there more that you want people to know? More than feel to as well, ask about. It? Well, I guess I, I There's hope it. You know, the nature of the word, okay. Well, I guess I guess the hope is that it does leave people with questions. You know. Um well I guess questions ultimately about does this represent any, any in any way the kind of gestalt of what are what are people thinking out there? Uh does this represent the buzz of of consciousness or any any subsection of it, or is that even something that's possible to do? Um in a sense that that's what the piece was striving to do, with the full knowledge that to to represent that is kind of futile. It's it's impossible, uh, and yet, you know, to build a system that's sort of trying to do that. Well, that that was that's the experiment. What happens if you try? Uh, so th- those are the questions, I guess, uh, at the deepest level that I would hope that people would be left wondering.
2: I'm wondering whether you have a larger um, idea of, of um, acoustic ecology, maybe, and that this is a new acoustic ecology from you know, when we have technology that's related take tech, technical development
0: and the acoustic ecology. Well, at that level, chat exists without uh, much sound and without much uh, sort of sensory uh, richness. You know, it's mainly people typing alone in front of computer screens. Um, And so it's about as unsensual as you can get. And this is, I think part of it was also by making an aesthetic framework that it could be in and something that would be at least hopefully beautiful in some way that would draw people in and, and open them to experience this stuff in a way that I know I'm not open. If I just see chat scrolling by on a screen, it doesn't. I, I can't even look at it. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't have any impact on me, and I can't. Certainly can't find any emotional resonance in it. So, uh, trying to create a situation that allows. You know, and, and that's the, that's the tricky thing because in creating an aesthetic framework, you run the risk of imposing what that interpretation is, and so. The, the, the aspiration of the piece is, is not to impose that but to give you just enough of a, of, of a stage that it's set on to allow you know, an emotional resonance to, to happen to let the stuff speak for itself which I don't think it can do in its native form it doesn't do that very well so that was, that's the goal i just to say also like, I, I, when I, when I speak, like, what
4: I'm
3: getting a real sense that it's about it's about identity formation and about the way that 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 people assert their identities in certain in certain situations and I mean the fact that you're using all these I am and I like statements which, and but then because it's anonymous and because they're happening in rapid fire because of the sheer number of statements and the fact that they're all brought on sort of like the same level with this one voice it's it, it's just really interesting it's like it's all collapsing in a certain
0: way yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that—that's one of the, you know, the piece has all these different axes that it's trying to work on, and then and the—and that's what I was talking about with Wings of Desire, the axis of this flattened murmur, you know, which is the collective, which you—you you only hear as a kind of sound, as a—as a, just a wall of sound, and then the individual voices, and um, trying to work with with modulating that, you know, the I am is all about. These individual assertions, I am, and they're out in the open. They're in the clear. they you know, you can hear them explicitly, and they're not lost in the mass. And other scenes are much more about uh, about that wash. So, um, yeah, I mean, once once that single British voice was established as our only option, we just sort of worked within that framework. Uh, to one more question, then I'll move on, and uh, hopefully I'll have time at the end for questions, too. Okay, well, I have one specifically on that. Okay. And what questions from this project
2: came to you as an artist,
0: and what direction do you find yourself wanting to go and needing to explore after this project? Well, without, without like overthinking that, which I could certainly do, um, what I did next was spin, you know, so in a sense, it, this project left me with all these sort of formal things about sound and image that I wanted to explore, which isn't sort of the obvious thing. Maybe I wanted to be free for a little while from from the text, um, but it also left me with a whole lot of things that I wanted to do with text and with you know what you can do with. You know, Mark and I are still working. Uh, now we're now we're taking news as the kind of fodder for um, for for a project. You know, uh, culling from the I think it's four thousand news feeds that Google News is getting, uh, and and looking at those as something to be mined. Uh, and news is sort of the opposite of chat. It's like it's, it's the information that's coming down from above, and this is what's coming up from below. So those stand in interesting opposition to each other. Uh, and so there's a lot to explore in both of that and in the relationship between those two. How does the chat reflect the media? How does the media reflect what's being reflected back? And you know, can, can you get at that feedback loop in some way? So, um, oh, dying to play this, but I'm gonna skip it.
4: Watch the and Lunatic.
0: No. Um, Let's see. don't have too much time left. Um, I'm going to take stock of things for just a moment and see what I want to really not miss. All right. I'm going to skip Kirsher. Sorry, Kirscher. Um, and just talk about a few uh living sound artists that um that I really admire and whose work uh has has certainly had an impact on mine. Christian Marclay is one uh some of you may know, he's a uh really important contemporary artist and um his whole history uh, sort of begins with the, the turntable as the uh you know, as the as the central element and uh uh, he 's just on every imaginable kind of thing with turntables and records and and uh, both in performance and, and installation, and he also deals a lot with sort of physical manifestations of sound and sound producing objects and sound systems and This is a piece I unfortunately don 't have the video for um, but it 's an incredibly powerful piece it 's a video piece uh, just plays on a monitor or a projection um, and it begins with Christian Markley tying this guitar uh, to the back of a pickup truck. And then he drags it. And the soundtrack is what is picked up you know, from this. It's plugged in. So it's what's picked up from this guitar as it's dragged along this dirt road. And um, and eventually is, is totally destroyed in the process. Um, but it's, at the same time, sort of funny and horrifying and, and deeply disturbing and it's about you can, you can sort of feel the rocks in the road through the impacts that they make on the guitar and you hear you sort of hear what the guitar is feeling and uh, so there's a, there's a sort of empathy in this piece that I find really moving. Uh, so that's, it's called Guitar Drag uh, and he made it about three or four years ago. Um this is a floor that he covered with records. Uh he's done this in a number of places and uh I'm not 100% sure but I think in some cases he'll later play the records to, you know, sort of get what's picked up by all the the activity and was, people speaking. And, and, an and, 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 and it
2: was a wonderful time. And there was one man there. One man there. Was one man there. Was one man. There was one man there. One man there who had a long tube on the end of his smoker, and he told us that he was going to tell us that he was going to put us that he was going to put that he was going to put us that he was going to put us. And he told. And he told. And he told. Of his smoker. And he told. Smoke, smoke, smoke. The end of his. 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 The end of smoker. The end of his. The end of his smoker. And he told us that he was going to, and he told us that this, is e- teaspoonful this e- a e- of this, is e- e- smoker, one teaspoonful of this, set up in this oh. jar, and you see what I had, well, me. see what I had, well, mm-hmm. and he said, well, and he down, you and he you. said, well, and he went down, and he said, and he said, went down, he went down, and he went yeah. 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 down, he went down, and he said, down, and he said, down, he went d- he went
0: so that's just a little taste of of what he's doing it had an interesting relation that piece when I heard it uh, just when I was putting these all together had an interesting relationship with some of the Steve Reich stuff it's a totally unsystematic way of uh, doing the sort of looping repetition um, and uh, very different results. Um, Pauline Oliveros is a composer some of you may know. Um, She lives in uh, the Catskills area. And, um, well, I'll play one piece and I'll first talk about a piece that, that is sort of a conceptual performance work that I don't have any record of, but she does this performance, she's done it a couple of times, where uh, she will work with a shortwave radio operator or a ham radio operator to direct a uh, signal to the moon. And so she does a performance where she'll take the output of one of the instruments or performers or singers and run it into the shortwave transmitter It's beamed to the moon, reflected off the moon, and then received back into the space. And there's a delay, I forget precisely what it amounts to, it's like 18 seconds or something, uh, for the round trip of the radio signal from the moon and back to the Earth. And uh, to me, that's just such a beautiful, uh, you know, it it, it does so many things with sound. It, It kind of creates this beautiful cosmic physical relationship with the Earth and the universe. Uh, and it also the sound comes back and it's totally transformed by this process of being converted to shortwave and sent and received and uh, has a, an extraordinary quality to it. Um, and uh, oops, yes we didn't And I'll just play a little of this. Uh, this is a long piece that is made from uh, speech melodies run through a vocoder. Really influenced me is Hans-Peter Kuhn. He um play a little bit. He's, he's someone who does most of the sound design for Robert Wilson's theater work. And uh, this is a piece I'm not actually sure of what the theater work this is from, but a little bit of what he does. Theater sound. Um it's his installations that have most inspired me, he really uh, works with the kind of drama of space and he makes these sound installations that weren't really even about the sounds at a certain point as much as about how the sounds kind of occupy a space and and, uh, move through. Uh, I'll show you a little bit of what I'm talking about. thinks of as yellow sound and um these are the pieces I know the best, uh, and the effect of these, I, I, there's no recording of them and I don't know how a recording could really do it justice because the effect is all about being in the presence of these multiple sound sources uh, when uh, this is sort of a random phase piece in, in a sense. Um, there's a, a click that's triggered at regular intervals in each speaker, but it's a, a fairly inexact circuit. So within only a few seconds of the thing being turned on, it it becomes kind of a random field of these uh, uh, noises, and it's a a kind of extraordinary sound uh, and, and experience. It's A little bit like rain falling, I guess. And here's a piece, I don't know, did anyone see this? He worked on it for years and years in planning it, and it was supposed to be up for a couple of years, and it ended up being only uh, it, it got taken down after two weeks for some reason, um, but uh, it was on this pier in New York and it was really an incredible piece. Uh, the picture that you're looking at is shot from where you would actually experience the piece, which is a, another pier that's um, like, a, I don't know, maybe 100 yards away. Um, and. The pier's really long and it has these, I think there are nine speakers along it, uh, nine of these sort of uh, pylons with a colored light and each has a very, very large speaker in it that's pointed towards the pier where you see the work from and sounds kind of skitter up back and forth. Uh, sometimes they move in, in, in kind of rhythmic pulses but more often they're kind of you sort of scurrying along this distance and it just does an amazing thing of kind of collapsing scale uh, to to hear something moving so fast and so clearly, um, and also just the act of experiencing this piece meant walking from the West Side Highway, which is where this pier starts, where there's like a deafening roar of traffic, out all the way to the end of this pier, where you really hear very little except the piece and you know the the sounds of the boats on the water, uh, and so just that process of paying attention to sound as you're distancing yourself from the city was really uh, a memorable one. So this piece, um, probably, this is, the one that's been on the radio. uh, uh, And um, some of you may have heard it. And I'll just talk briefly about it and play just the beginning, because I I think it might be played again tomorrow. Um, But uh, this is a piece I made in 2002. It was a commission from Creative Time, which does public art pieces in New York, and apparently now in Chicago, too. Uh, I think they have their first out of New York project here. And the commission was uh, at the moment of the reopening of this Winter Garden space, which was destroyed uh, when the uh, towers fell. And uh, so when Creative Time asked for a proposal, I went down there, looked around, thought about what this place was, and and, uh, they really were very explicitly trying not to have memorial works be there, but more sort of works that, that went in a different direction. And uh, so I was trying to look at, well, what is, what is the active life of this place? And at the point when I visited, the only people who were there at that point were uh, the traders over in the uh, commodities exchange, the New York Mercantile Exchange. Um, and they deal mostly with energy. Uh, so it's oil and coal and gas traders as well as gold and silver and um, so I had a friend who works at the exchange uh, and he had always told me about this sound on the trading floor and um, I think uh, Johanna played a sound I guess from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange I had never heard that that sound before I did this piece Uh, I'd only had it described to me my by my friend Mark and it sort of existed in my imagination, and, and uh, I, I wasn't disappointed when I, in fact, heard it. And again, it relates to this notion of multiple voices that, you know, back to the, the Van vendors clip and, and uh, other pieces that I've made that I'm not showing that deal with how you can listen to lots of voices. And it, I thought about also the relationship between the sort of pit of men, and here in New York, I think there are, 3,000 men licensed to trade on the energy floor and three women, of which only one actually trades. And so it is the voices of men, uh, almost exclusively. And um, so it's this very hot, very uh, emotional, very worked-up sound. And I was interested to sort of set it in opposition to the cooler fluctuations of prices, which is what you know, what this, what that sea of people, I've come to understand, is doing, is it's just sort of a leveling pool for the price of oil. Uh, if there's somebody out there willing to pay a higher price, then the, the whole pool rises, and if nobody out there is willing to buy for the price that it's currently selling, the whole pool falls, and so this This sort of seething pool of human beings is at some level just the output is just this meter, which is the price of oil it 's actually several you know many price indexes, but uh, oil being the the single most important one so uh, i 'll just play the first two minutes of this also physically. You can see these palm trees. The Silver. way the piece was presented in in the winter garden. The sound, the voices were coming. There were speakers built into cotton. the base of each palm tree. Cotton.
2: Cotton. Up 45, and there are also speakers
0: up above. Orange juice
2: Twenty-four down speakers all together. Silver. Up Oil up thirty, fifty-three. Silver down forty-four seventy-eight and forty-nine zero
3: zero. Sometimes I say to people, didn't you hear me bidding? And I know if they say I didn't hear you, I know they're not telling me the truth because people always hear my voice. It's it's unique and it's a strong voice too. If I'm selling October's, you know you don't say you, you say Ock and you don't say the full handle. You say like Ock at ten. So I just yell out Ock at
4: ten. Ock seventy bid. Buy twenty five. five 25. So twenty five. Ock seventy five bid at seventy eight. Buy ten bid. Ten bid. Seven bid. Ock seven bid. Seven bid. Seven seven Ock, seven Ock, Ock nine. Ock nine.
2: So as uh, you
0: these hear these voices, uh, they're uh, actually uh, coming from yeah, these various ballpark. trees. So it's, you know, and there's a, a good distance between them. So it made for a kind of uh, call, a physical, spatial call and response, which uh, uh, echoes a little bit the pit. That they stand around. They are, in fact, yelling across this space to each other. Um, And I have to say, I don't know if any of you uh, were able to hear it in the space. Uh, In the end, very few people were. The schedule that they had for it was kind of crazy. Um, But it was very difficult to hear. I I felt somewhat defeated by the acoustics of this room as much as I had thought I knew what I was doing. Uh, It was. Because I made a a piece that had speech in it, it was virtually unintelligible um, in this echoey space, despite the fact that I spent a week mixing it on the site, trying to bring it out. But uh, it was very, very challenging. Uh, So uh, I I was humbled by the acoustics here. Um, And so in a sense, it has a new life as a radio piece that works a lot more closely with with what the piece is really about than it did on, on the site. Um, and I'm going to finish by just showing this work in progress. Um, this is a park that uh, Ann, Ann Hamilton, who's an installation artist, is uh, designing along with um, uh, Michael Van Valkenberg who's a landscape architect. It's uh, being built in Battery Park City and Anne asked me to collaborate with her to create a kind of soundscape for this park. And uh, uh, my thought was to try to find a way of developing a kind of inner secret underground life for the park. And I had heard um, this, uh, these recordings of this uh, thing, it's called a Sukinkutsu, uh, and it's a kind of underground... Uh, uh, vessel made of clay in a Japanese garden uh, that is, it acts as a drainage system but it's specifically designed to kind of resonate the sound of the water that's dripping into it and it makes this kind of beautiful dripping sound and that's not what we're going to do in the park uh, but the notion of having a sound up from underground uh, something subtle and uh, and and slightly mysterious uh, is, is an appealing one. So we hit on the idea of, we thought at some point about building underground vessels in the park uh, out of concrete or something, and it was just astronomically expensive to do them at the construction level that's required for permanent sort of public works. And then we hit on the idea of using the municipal drainage system that's in place as essentially the resonator, you know, substituting a manhole or a drainage inlet or a storm drain for the clay vessel. Uh, and it's a similar kind of a situation. It has water that pools up at the bottom. It's concrete instead of clay. And I don't know how it's going to sound yet, but we're putting speakers in them. Uh, and uh, we'll... I, I haven't yet designed the sound either. I want to do that on-site kind of in response to what what I can hear up from out of these uh, drainage sites, but uh, here's how it's looking as of a few weeks ago. They've run the conduit, so we can eventually install the speakers. So um, I'm going to end with... Well, I'm not going to show this. not going to show this. Not going to show this, just trying to get to my closing slide. So that's it. Um, uh I want to end there and just open it back up uh, briefly for questions. And uh, can someone just, um, if you push like one of the lower preset buttons on the lighting, it won't be too blindingly awful. Great. Uh, yeah.
3: Um, I just wanted to go back in light of um, what you talked about throughout um, to an initial comment. We mentioned that sound art had this uh, visual element. And um, you know, and, and I think yes, there is this long tradition of sound image penetration and uh, image penetration. And uh, for example, now with Maxim T where you have a lot of people working with these isomorphic uh, sound image relationships uh, we' doing spin. Um, but I wonder if um, in some ways the need to put, I mean, and I can understand where there's sort of interesting, an interesting relationship that you can create um, with sound and image. But I wonder if sometimes when you say that sound art has a visual element and you identify that as being the definition of sound art, whether it might be a little bit inaccurate because of the fact that maybe the reason that sound art finds itself with a visual element is, a, um, is like a problem with having a proper delivery method for sound art. So what do you do if it's not going into radio? If it's not sort of uh, sort of formatted or into a you know, module or sort of feature? What happens when it isn't destined to become music? Where does sound art go? And among the choices, the visual art is one place where you can actually put sound. But it seems that just as an experimental film, there's a there's a broad tradition of work that. Uh, people experimenting with the image without it having to be destined for narrative or destined for for any kind of um, uh, sort of structure like documentary in sound art as well. There's work that maybe more hermetic work that might not be a, you know sort of like a, available for public radio consumption. But there is a tradition of work of sound art that that doesn't necessarily find that it has to deliver itself within. Visuality, or have to deliver itself within a radio format or within a musical format, and I think that you could appreciate this because I think that a lot of, like for example, when you uh, when you move from like spin to your pieces with the chat room, I mean what you're dealing with are problems in information theory, with sort of like how do you get. Noise and turn it into something that is coherent and can be delivered and can be communicated, mm-hmm. and that's the problem. Really, that's the problem inherent in sound art: is that okay? You sort of are playing around with this sound and it's really pleasurable. But how do you actually turn that into information? How do you turn data? How do you turn the noise into data, or I mean, data into information? Right, Same right. Well. So I guess I wanted to just complicate that that initial thesis that you had based on what I saw. Um, that sound art is pure. Can be purely defined as. Um, uh, the sound experimentation
0: that finds itself individual the uh, visual world or installation world. Well, I guess, yeah. In response to that, um, it's I, I certainly wasn't trying to create an exclusive definition for what sound art is, but uh, more to acknowledge that I guess that's the the particular thing that maybe interests me is finding those situations where well. I just saw the Merce Cunningham dance, and you know that that brought up a lot of these same issues because he creates this choreography that is explicitly supposed to not have a relationship to the music. but what does that even mean? you know because you see them together, so immediately there is a relationship, and I think he's totally conscious of that, and I think that I'm conscious of that in the sense that um, if I create if anyone creates uh, a sound work that is for the radio or to be listened to on headphones or cd or, or whatever it's not that there isn't a visual element it's just that you relinquish control over it you don't know if the person's going to experience it driving or working out or you know